I um, finished worked on the sermon uh, at home uh, just because of everything that was going on this this week. I came one day in the office and then I finished up at, at home and I was working on the uh, my sermon in the family room on the family room desk there and I noticed sitting beside me on the on the table right next to me three remote controls one for the television one for the cable service and one for our Apple TV and as I looked at those things and I thought to myself true to the male beast I do control them all when I become bored with one, there are two more that I can play with. Janie doesn't fully understand this need for control, but gives me the satisfaction of fulfilling my assumed male destiny of flipping through TV channels to my soul's delight. Except, of course, when she is uh, watching something that she really wants to see. That's when the clash of the feminine emotion, I'm involved with this, you know, and the male drive to explore, well, let's see what else is on. We could be missing something uh, comes into clash. Why am I telling you this? Well, it occurs to me that as we discuss the nature of God and his involvement in our lives, that at some point we need to face the issue of who's going to push the buttons in our lives. Who is going to be in control of our lives? Is this a role that we will carefully guard for ourselves? Or is there a willingness to give over to God the right to exercise his authority in the course that our lives take? There's probably no discussion about God that brings this matter to a head than like the theme I want to talk to you about this morning. The God who never loses control. Nico and Zelda started attending the church where I was serving as pastor. They were a warm, engaging couple that Janie and I readily connected with them. They had immigrated to Canada from South Africa and were adjusting to the climate in their new home and asking questions about how, and how it would be possible for a, a forced air furnace to possibly keep them warm in minus 35 degree temperatures that they would be facing in Alberta. And so we had some laughs and chuckles about that. But as our relationship with them grew, their story, especially Zelda's story, began to slowly emerge. It was their second marriage for both of them. Nico had gone through a rather painful uh, and difficult divorce. And while not wanting to diminish his struggles with, with hurt and loss that he had experienced, Zelda's journey to singleness and remarriage was tragically filled with a series of painful losses. Zelda's first husband, Saki, was a physician who headed up a trauma unit for a high-tech private hospital in South Africa. God had blessed them with a darling baby daughter who they, had, they adored and who brought much happiness to them. When Monica, their daughter, was three months old, Zelda flew with her to visit her parents. The day after arriving, her mother was driving with Zelda and Monica to go shopping when they were involved in a head-on collision hit by a drunk driver. Zelda suffered serious but non-threatening injuries. However, both Monica and her mother were killed in the crash. Zelda's recovery took several months, but eventually she regained her strength and life began to take on renewed hope, especially when she became pregnant again. Isaac was born and brought a measure of healing to both Zelda and Saki. 
Just before his first birthday, Isaac was admitted to the hospital with pneumonia. He wasn't responding well to treatment, and after further tests, it was discovered that he had a rare blood disorder. His condition deteriorated rapidly, and while the medical team and his father, with his father standing by, worked on him, his organs began shouting, uh, shutting down, and he died. The grief and loss experienced with the death of another child was overwhelming. Saki poured himself into his practice, and Zelda looked for ways to busy herself as they tried to push past the numbness that they felt. Two more children were born, a girl, Corlia, and a boy, Johan, both having the same disease that Isaac had. However, uh, God's grace sustained them uh, as children. A few days after Johan's first birthday, Saki had been asked to medically evacuate a trauma patient from India to South Africa. He arrived home exhausted after the trip and collapsed into bed. Rising early in the morning to attend to his practice at the trauma center, he dropped Cordia off at school and proceeded to the hospital. As he continued on, he succumbed to his state of exhaustion, fell asleep at the wheel, and drove in front of a garbage truck. He did not survive the crash. As Zelda unpacked her story, I was dumbfounded by the extent of her pain and loss. I found myself asking her, where did you see God in all of this? Her response showed a resilience of faith that I have not often encountered. She referenced Hebrews 12 using the, uh, the message translation where the writer stated, Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it. Because he never lost sight of where he was headed, that that exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. When you find yourself flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item. She responded by asking the question, is this easy to do? And then she answered her own question in this way. No, it's impossible. But to me, that's, Christ, that's what Christianity is all about. It's doing the impossible, all the while fixing our eyes on Jesus and allowing him to make the impossible possible. A few years after Saki's death, a lady in the Bible study group Zelda attended gave her a prophetic word that God was sending a man into her life, a tall man. Zelda wasn't sure that she was ready for this. One Sunday as she was leaving church, she accidentally bumped into a man, a tall man. He called her by name. She responded rather curtly, Do I know you? He spoke of how their paths had crossed in university. That would have been 20 years ago. In short, this tall man, six foot seven inches, by the name of Nico, sat beside Zelda as she unpacked her story, smiling gently. This past summer, we received a phone call from them. They were passing through Toronto and asked if we could get together for lunch, which Janie and I did, and Zelda 
gave me a copy of her book that she's now published, Death, Where Is Your Sting? Hope in the Midst of Loss, Pain, and Tragedy. The stories that I've just told you are only some that are recorded in, in, in here. One thing of which I am very conscious in speaking about God's limitless power and control is the reality that life experience for many people is a series of hurts and pains and disappointments. Throughout the day, instead of walking in the assurance that God is big enough for whatever they may face, they wander about discouraged and disillusioned because it never seems that God's power is at work in their situations. They do not have the confidence that God does have everything in control. And so let me say that if you are feeling this way, in no way do I want to discount what you are feeling or want you to feel diminished in any way. However, I need to say to you that the clear teaching of the Bible is that God does have limitless power, that he is big enough for all of your problems, and that he wants to prove his ability to perform in mighty ways in your life. God, who is almighty and all-powerful, is both able and willing to keep you from collapsing into your disillusionments. The Bible tells us that, in fact, God is limitless in his power. This means that God is never diminished in his potency to work all things according to his good purposes. You may have heard this quality of God referred to as his omnipotence. He has unrestrained, unrestricted, unreserved, limitless power. He never lacks for strength. He never loses control. He is always on top of everything that happens. This means that inseparably connected with his omnipotence is God's sovereignty. A.W. Tozer wrote, Sovereignty and omnipotence must go together. One cannot exist without the other. To reign, God must have power. And to reign sovereignly, he must have all power. Sovereignty and omnipotence tell me that God is absolute in his capacity to purposely bring all things together in accordance with his will. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah has something significant to say to us on the all-powerful nature of God. Listen to what he wrote. Oh, Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? Oh, Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depth of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. It would appear that Isaiah's peers have concluded that God is, is, is totally unaware of what is going on in their lives. And he's powerless to do anything about it. And so they conclude that God doesn't care. He's too busy flinging stars here and there to be concerned about what's going on in their lives. He's lost track of where they are and of what is happening in their lives. Maybe this is how you're feeling today. With all that is going on in your life, you have reached the conclusion that God can't be really watching out for you. Your life is out of control, or so you think, and you are convinced that you have fallen off God's radar screen. This statement of Isaiah and the testimony of Zelda should lead you to consider the validity of your conclusion. The truth is that God has not lost track of what is going on in your life, 
And he has a depth of understanding that extends beyond your perspective. He does not grow weak in his ability to look out for you, nor does he give up on protecting you in your life's difficult moments, whether these are self-inflicted or the result of matters beyond your control. To those who trust him, God gives unusual resolve to persevere and to not cave in to weakness. He gives strength to renew them in their weakened condition. And so the prophet Isaiah goes on to declare, but those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Here Isaiah identifies how trust in God will set the pace for us to push through the times of adversity we will experience. There will be times when adversity will result in a, in a soaring level of trust where we rise above our pain with mysterious hope. Then there will be times when we are more down to earth and have to make a conscious effort just to stay in the race. Or we may find ourselves wrestling through our pain at a walking pace, leaning hard on the promises of God. All of us deal with adversity in different ways. But the common factor is our intentional dependence on God's absolute trustworthiness. The Bible's full of stories of God leading people through a variety of difficult unsettling and stretching, mind-stretching experiences to show his capacity of supporting them when sensibility just falls off the charts. God could have let Abraham stay in the comfort of the land of Ur, or Moses remain in the splendor of Pharaoh's palace, or Joseph avoid the adva- avoiding the advances of Potiphar's wife. He could have saved David from facing Goliath, kept Daniel out of the lion's den, protected Elijah from the threats of Jezebel, prevented Nehemiah from being taken into captivity, saved Jeremiah from rejection, left Jonah in the belly of the whale, allowed John the Baptist to keep his head and calm the storm that would lead the Apostle Paul to be shipwrecked. But he didn't. In fact, God used each of these seemingly out-of-control instances to bring people closer to himself, to produce courage, perseverance, hope, and ruthless trust. In all of this unrest, God gives us one gift, the one thing that makes all of the difference. God gave the assurance of his presence. The Bible says the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph and all of his biblical compatriots were not alone. God remained true to his commitment to be with them, and in doing so, God proved himself to be faithful to his promises in perfecting his will for them. Let me point out that when speaking of God keeping his promises, it may also be stated that God keeps his covenants, that he is a covenant-keeping God. That's basically what keeping his promises is referencing. Covenant is a word of solemn promise. It is a binding agreement between two or more parties that is intended to show mutual obligation to fulfill a commitment. And so when Janie and I were married, our pastor still used the old wording in the wedding vows. Some of you may be old enough to remember these. In the vows, there was this statement, I plight thee my troth. 
These words have been dropped by wedding ceremonies now because most people don't even uh, can't even pronounce them, let alone know what they mean. And, and they've been replaced by the modern equivalent of I give you my love or something along those lines. But the old wording means I covenant with you my truth. Truth in this context referred to remaining true to the relationship that we are covenanting to make with each other. The wedding liturgy's plight thee my troth language beckons us back to an understanding that truth finds its fullest expression in the context of relationship. The God of all truth gives meaning to the word in the way that he relates to us. And so Jesus, time and time again, would say to his followers, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth, bearing out the fact that truth lies dormant if not brought into a relational expression. As my mother advanced on in years, she, she lived actually to be a 100, had her 100th birthday, we had a big party and everything, and three weeks later she died. But as she got older, Janie and I wrestled with how to remain true to her in expressing our love in the form of gifts, whether it's at her birthday or at Christmas time or other times during the year. I mean, when a person approaches the age of my mom, what do you get her? I mean, she's already got really everything that she needs. And so as Janie and I talked about this and thought about it more, we decided that we would give her the gift of a day, that we would just come and be with her, and we would just be with her for the full day. On one Christmas, we had uh, taken her out for a meal at an upscale restaurant in Niagara-on-the-Lake, something that my mother would have never have done on her own. And then we traveled up the, up the Niagara Parkway to the greenhouses at Niagara Falls, a place that she loved to visit with Dad when he was still living. Upon emerging from the greenhouses, we noticed that a rainbow had, had formed over Niagara Falls. And as I sat and observed that, and the beauty of it, and, and I thought, probably Niagara Falls is one of the few places that you could actually see a rainbow uh, in the wintertime. Rainbows have a special significance for those who are familiar with God's covenantal promises. In a declaration of promissory intent, God stated, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. In flying colors, God establishes a relationship with all creation that secures the well-being of his creatures. Now, although there may be a, a variety of interpretations regarding the flood narrative, one thing is absolutely clear. Chaos does not have the final word. The last word is retained by the one who presided over the flood. And his last word is this, I will remember my covenant. I will not abandon what I have made. Something has happened with God as a result of the flood. And life for all of his creatures, but especially humanity, has radically changed. In an extraordinary resolve, God says, never again. What has led him to this determination has nothing to do with humanity or creation or water or floods. God has made a decision about the grief and trouble of his own heart. 
God is postured differently. Evil and wicked rebellion have not been taken away from the earth as a result of the flood, but God has now positioned himself as being with and being for his creation. The relation of creator to creature is no longer in a scheme of retribution. On the basis of God's never again, the hope of having rainbow days has promise. Rainbow days, I would like to suggest to you, are those days when God seems so near that you almost feel that you could just reach out and touch him. It is just so obvious that he has everything under control and all is well. I had one of those days a few years ago as I lay in a hospital operating room undergoing a procedure to insert a stent into the left interior descending artery in my heart that was 95% blocked. As the doctors and nurses hovered around me in the operating room, I had the unmistakable awareness that they were not the only persons caring for me. I was acutely aware that God was there. Assuring me with his peace, letting me know that he was watching out for me and that his heart beat strongly for my well-being. Sometimes I'm asked how I can know these kinds of things. And I will admit that there is a mysterious component to my ability to know God is with me that is hard to explain to the uninformed. A big part of knowing, however, is gained through reading the scriptures like we find at the beginning of the scriptural account of the flood narrative, where we are told, but God remembered Noah. The basis for the hope of having rainbow days is found in the fact that God remembers. For Noah, this meant escaping the ark. It meant getting his life back. It meant being awestruck by the appearance of the rainbow in the sky and receiving God's promise that never again will he have to wonder about God's commitment to him. I can just imagine uh, Noah getting out of the ark and looking up at the sky as God positioned the rainbow above him and just saying, wow, wow, isn't that something? <laughs> I feel that way every time I see a rainbow even though by now we are, they are a commonplace in our, our lives, of course. Rainbow days, I want to suggest, are those days with wow factor. There are days when everything seems to come together. Your life is just too good. On rainbow days, you want to talk with God and you hear Him speak to you by His Spirit and through the Bible. Worship comes easy. Songs of praise flow spontaneously from your lips. Obedience is instantaneous. And temptation holds no attraction. You are in the groove and nothing rattles your resolve. So what to do with rainbow days? Treasure them. Treasure them. When Noah got out of the boat and looked up in the sky to see the rainbow, he built an altar. He set up a reminder to God's faithfulness. He didn't let this moment slip by without stopping and celebrating. People who are wise learn to treasure rainbow days as precious moments. They store them up for times when rainy days replace rainbow days. It can be easy to take rainbow days for granted or assume that they will go on forever. And that's a big mistake because the reality is that life consists of more than rainbow days. When Janie and I were dating, we liked to listen to the carpenters. We actually still do. 
Um, one of the songs that Karen Carpenter sang was entitled Rainy Days and Mondays. Talking to myself and feeling old. Sometimes I'd like to quit. Nothing ever seems to fit. Hanging around. Nothing to do but frown. Rainy days and Mondays always get me down. Life has its rainy days and Mondays. Days when we feel down. When it appears we are all alone. When nothing we do seems to go right. When we just don't fit in anywhere. When God seems distant. I can't help but think that Noah rather had some days like this. I mean, the scripture account indicates that Noah and his family were confined to that ark for 12 and a half months. I mean, what do you do for over a year on a boat filled with bleeding sheep and mooing cows and laughing hyenas and warbling pigeons, to name just a few of the animal passengers on board? Not every day would have been smooth sailing. Whatever the case was with Noah, there are times when we simply go through the motions as we navigate our way in and around our relationship with God. Life with God becomes somewhat mechanical. We find ourselves in a spiritual funk. If we are honest with ourselves, we are a little or even perhaps a lot bored. God may be around somewhere, but we have little interest in searching him out. Here's something to remember on rainy days. God has resolved that he will stay with us, will endure our resistance to his companionship, and still position himself to write a new day for our lives. Through the outcome of the flood, God recognized that nothing has changed in the intentions of people. The imaginations of the human heart were evil before the flood and continued to be so after it as well. However, God no longer views this as an insurmountable problem. His passion for the redemption of humanity has been enlarged through the flood, and as the waters receded, so did God's impatience with the inclinations of the human heart. The new resolution in the heart of God is captured by His commitment to sustain us when rainy days abound. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. God presides over life's rainy days just as surely as he presided over the flood. Could it be that God sends the rain in my life because he wants to be able to release in me his true colors? As God was intent in spreading his rainbow over a new day for his creation, it is also his intention to color me over with his divine nature. Whether I am aware of it or not, God is constantly at work for my good. The covenant he established following the flood points to God acting not for himself, but for a troubled creation. The outcome from this is that God's disposition towards his creation has changed. He will remember my frailty. He has set his rainbow in the clouds as a covenant reminder. He puts on display his true colors and at the same time colors me over and wraps me up in a bow. The big win in all of this is that God acts most fully for himself when he acts on behalf of those he created and loves. 
This awareness changes the relationship I have with God from hostility to surrender. When our grandchildren were young and we would be looking after them, it was, it was always a challenge to, to know how to correct inappropriate behavior. After all, they are not your children, and so disciplining them must be done with caution. Well, on one occasion, one of them was testing the limits of acceptable behavior. I had observed that the parents had used the time-out approach to correcting misbehavior, so I concluded that that would be an acceptable response to his actions. My announcement of his punishment led to a bit of a meltdown, but I followed through and put him in our bedroom and closed the door. I waited for what I thought was an appropriate time and then opened the door to check in on him. He was sitting on the floor beside the bed. So I went over and I sat down beside him. I told him that it made me sad to have to give him a time out. And then I asked him if there was anything he wanted to say to me. He crawled up into my lap, laid his head on my shoulder and said, I just want you to hold me. I doubt that there is any grandfather in the world whose heart wouldn't be melted with these words. I put my arms around him and held him close. Hostility had given way to loving embrace. It occurs to me that in times of our defiance against God, or when pain grabs hold and God seems distant, that the real longing of our hearts is to have him hold us. The rainbow is God's repeated sign to us that when we stop our resistance, he has big shoulders on which we can lay our heads and strong arms to embrace and hold us close. And so as I wrap up here, it's worth noting that some commentators have seen in Noah a connection with Jesus. And it really isn't difficult to see why. I mean, in Noah, God set in motion a way, a new way for human history. In Jesus, God set in motion the way to new life, life to the full of the hope of eternal life with God, the creator in his heavenly home. Jesus stands as God's ultimate commitment to remember us when we are away from God, either through deliberate acts or lost in the pain of heartache. And so there is a crossover between the story of Noah and the redemptive covenant established by Jesus. I call it the crossbow effect. With the rainbow, God demonstrates a change of heart towards us. With the cross, God demonstrates his commitment to bring about a change of heart within us. The amazing reality in all of this is that we are never forgotten by God. In the same way that God remembered Noah and rescued him from the floodwaters, God remembers our plight and commits to set us free from our place of lostness. The rainbow is linked to the cross. Both speak of God's provision to work for the good of those who love him and embrace his purposeful will as being actively worked out in their lives. In an act of gracious benevolence, God invites us to leave behind whatever troubled waters may threaten to submerge us and cross over into his covenant rest. The God to whom we surrender our lives 
isn't interested in establishing his power by remote control. The splendor of his power is most evident in the human heart that trusts in his relentless love and abides in his tender care. It is in the power of this love that you find the strength to believe that nothing can keep you from being held in his strong and ever-present arms. He positions himself as the true and faithful God. And this God you can know. Let's pray. And so, Father, as we've pushed through this topic this morning, looked at some scriptures, interacted with how you have revealed yourself in this world, we do acknowledge that there are times when, as the old prophet said, the Old Testament prophet said, we're soaring high. Things are going well. There are times when we we stumble and try to keep running, and then there are times when we're just enveloped by stuff in our lives, and we just stumble to keep walking. Help us to understand that no matter where we are, you never lose sight of us. No matter what is going on, you are aware of, you are present in, and you want us to understand that you have covenanted yourself, made a covenant with us, that you will not forget us. You will remember. Never again are we alone. And so I pray that that truth will capture our heart and establish the strength of relationship with you that will lead to truly living, true life. Because your truth is given in the context of relationship, our relationship with you. That's how we discover what truth is. And so may we crawl up in your lap. And say to you, we just want you to hold us. And believe that indeed you will. Because you are a God who knows all. Who never loses control. Who is always with us. In Jesus our Lord. Amen. Stand together with me. Let me say as we conclude here today that there may be things that are going on in your life that you just need to talk to somebody about or have somebody pray with you. Uh, We're here for that purpose. We have people from our prayer team that would love to have an opportunity to to chat with you. And so just make your way this way instead of going out um, through the, the exit. Again, thanks for standing with Janie and me as we walk through a bit of a deep time dark time, but uh, God has proven himself to be faithful. And so let me just say to you, as you walk through, as you journey through life, be mindful of this. The God of angel armies walks with us. So may the peace of God capture your heart and your mind, your 
souls, your whole being. In the name of Jesus, amen.